Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I want to announce that this will be the last in the sermon series on 1 Corinthians, starting next month in October. Uh, there will be a new series of messages, all uh, pointing to and leading up to the fundraising concert on the 28th and 29th of October. And so I will uh, urge you that if you have not yet gotten your uh, tickets to bring your friends and family, please do so and uh, so that we can have a very good turnout uh, for this concert. Um, also, uh, after the October series, uh, our new pastor, Pastor Ian, will come and he will give a series of sermons in November. And then uh, December, we will go into the Advent season. So we have a lot to look forward to. And I hope that you will be here every Sunday to join us and be a part of it. Today, we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'll be real honest with you, uh, being that this will be the last time I'm part of a series, so to speak, uh, I was praying and hoping the Lord would give us some other topic to speak on. uh, But here it is, chapter 5. And uh, so here we are. And uh, as much as I tried to pray it away, I couldn't do it. And so here I am. And this is, you have to realize that whenever church, the church uh, exercises uh, church discipline on a member, uh, it is sure to cause much controversy. There's just no, no matter how nice you try to do it, no matter how smooth you try to make it happen, it just doesn't come out that way. Maybe perhaps that's why it's so seldom done. It's not done very often. And um, views about church discipline, they go the whole gamut. They, they, they go the whole range. On the one side, you have people who are uh, saying uh, all kinds of things like, um, the church has no right to interfere with the lives of people. If they want to do something, they should be able to do it. And then, on the other side, you have people who plead for the purity of the church and for the uh, reputation and testimony of the Lord. And most of all, those same people would be the ones that'll tell you that the well-being, the spiritual well-being of that believer is at stake. And we want to be there to help them, uh, to get them uh, out of their particular sin or um, habit that has imprisoned them. So that is why it's so important that believers understand what the Bible says about the process and practice of church discipline. For example, when is church discipline necessary? How is it to be carried out? In the worst case scenario, what should happen to the errant believer? These are just some of the few questions that the Bible answers about church discipline. When the church ceases to take proper action against clearly sinful behavior, it is destined to be distracted, divided, and disgraced, and also dishonor the name of the Lord. And so, this is of utmost importance. This is not something we should skirt around or something we should try to bury or skip over or anything like that. This is important. So, let's continue our study in 1 Corinthians as God speaks to us, to his, uh, speaks to us, his people, about sin and church discipline. To understand this, it helps to understand the issues that were at the church in Corinth, Okay. For example, the Christians at Corinth came out from a highly charged, sexually pagan culture. That was their background, okay? And so it was very difficult for them to separate themselves from their pagan ways of thinking and behaving. Isn't that sort of like us, too, after we got saved? 
oh, there were some habits. There were some behaviors that were pretty hard to change, weren't there? And so this is the, what the Christians at Corinth faced. Now, the Christians at Corinth allowed their pride and arrogance and sexual immorality to exist and be practiced in the, in the church. Now, at first you might say, now that is really strange because the church is so different than the Corinthian culture. You're right, but what happens is the culture came into the church rather than the church going into the culture. And so that was an important uh, development. The Apostle Paul clearly and boldly addresses these ungodly ways of thinking and living. And so another way to look at the first six chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians is this way. In chapters 1 to 4, Paul addresses the more private or in-house internal issues. These were issues of lesser concern to non-Christians. There was the fact that there were factions in the church fueled by the Corinthian arrogance and dependence upon human wisdom, all right? But people outside the church could care less. They didn't care about what all this stuff. Let them do what they want to do kind of the thing. But when you get to chapters 5 and 6, Paul addresses more public issues. And these were the issues like sexual immorality and lawsuits among believers, this was out in the open. This was not something that was covered up. This was not something that stayed inside the four walls of the church. But rather, it was wide open out there for all to see. And so is these issues drew the attention of non-believers and would have a great impact on the reputation of the Lord, the church, and those who believed in the Lord. So you can understand then why Paul was so anxious and so concerned about addressing these issues. You know, I come from the America. You know, that's no secret. I come from America. And we feed on scandals. We feed on sensationalism. And if you want to sell newspapers and magazines, all you got to do is find a story about something bad happening in the church or to somebody who goes to church. And suddenly the magazines and the newspapers are flying off the shelves because people can't get enough of that. Why? Because the world loves to see God's church and God's people fall into sin. Well, that's a strange statement, Pastor. Why would they do that? They love to see those who claim to believe and follow God are just like those who don't <laughs> believe or follow God. And so they sort of pick themselves up, and they say, see, you're just like me. You're just like the rest of us. And so that brings, that pumps up their pride and, and gives them a shot in the arm. And then as a result, God is not real. He is not relevant. Humanity can choose to live as it pleases with no fear of accountability to a holy and righteous God, leading to their own eternal condemnation. That's the sad part. That is the real sad part. But it happens all the time. And so that's why it's so important that we have writings. Uh, God spoke through uh, such writers as the Apostle Paul to give us the real scoop on the importance of church discipline and sin. God wants his people to know the gravity of allowing sin to exist in the church and go unaddressed. Okay? He wants God's people to know this. So let's see how this unfolds in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. 
three points. The first one is the church should mourn over sin. Look at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Well, the word, the phrase, actually reported, means it is commonly known. Commonly known. This was not something that was kept under wraps. This was known to the whole city of Corinth that there was this going on in the church. The word immorality means it's where we get the root word for our English word, pornography. Okay? And it refers to illicit sexual relations happening outside the bounds of marriage. And so we can only begin to imagine what the the term immorality means, but he was very specific as to identify the specific kind of illicit relationships going on. He says the kind that is not even named among the Gentiles, and someone has his father's wife. This was an incestuous relationship between a child and perhaps their stepmother uh, or something like that. It It was a heinous sin. To show you how heinous it was, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 22, spoke out against this. They said, this is absolutely a no-no. This is prohibited. No discussion. Full stop, as you Singaporeans like to say. Okay? At the end of the day, no, 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 no. Don't ask again. No, this is not going to work. And then, even in Roman law, and you know how good the Romans were about enjoying themselves, Even the Romans had laws against this kind of relationship going on. So that's why Paul said, even the Gentiles don't go for this. So why are you allowing this to happen? Well, there was an unacceptable response by the church. Look at verse 2. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. There's that word arrogant again, puffed up. According to their own wisdom or way of thinking, they chose not to act against it. Well, what was this worldly thinking leading them to? Perhaps it's the same kind of thinking that goes on in today's world. How many times have you heard, whenever the issue of sin is raised, something like this? We are just being open-minded. Okay? Come on. Don't get all twisted up, all right? This, we're just being open-minded. Or how many times have you heard, it is their choice, who are we to say that it is wrong? That was the thinking that was going on in the minds of the Corinthians. And so whatever way they were thinking, it is clear they were not thinking according to God's word, God's will, or God's ways. How should they have been thinking and feeling It says in the scriptures there, have not mourned instead. This is a powerful word. For the word mourned there is the same one that is used for describing deep sorrow at the death of a a person. Do we have that kind of feeling when uh, people sin? Obviously, they did not. And then, how should they have been thinking and acting? Look at the last part of verse 2. The one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst, meaning expelled or excluded from the community of believers. 
The unrepentant brother needed to be removed from the community of believers at Corinth. But because of their arrogance, because of the way they thought, they folded their arms and they just closed their eyes, closed their ears, and they let it happen. You see? And that's what can happen when we start thinking of the ways of the world, when we start depending on our own wisdom. We do not take action on the things we ought to take action. You see? And so the church should acknowledge sin in the midst, in their midst, and mourn over it and then act. Well, that leads us to verses 3 and 5. The church should judge sin, verses 3 and 5. Now, although Paul wasn't with them, he already had made a judgment on this. Look at verse 3. For I, on my part, though absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present, he says. What was that judgment and what gave him the right to say it? Verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, he says. When he uses those two, two terms, the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of our Lord Jesus, the focus is upon authority, okay? Paul's not saying, okay, I deputize myself, okay? Nobody else will do it, so I'm going to do it. No, he didn't do that. He said, in the name of the Lord and the power of the Lord, we make this judgment. And so it is important that the church recognize it is the Lord's authority under the Lord's authority, that action can be taken. It is important that the church understand it's by the Lord's power that action is taken according to God's word. Well, what action? What action? Now, verse 5 has always fascinated me as a believer from the earliest times. I could not imagine a person of Paul's stature speaking so strongly and harshly. Look at verse 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does that mean? The word deliver there is a judicial term. It means sentence. He pronouncing a sentence on this uh, errant uh, believer. And so he says, I am going to thrust him out into Satan's realm. This person will now be open to Satan's attacks. What can happen if he's open to Satan's attacks? For the destruction of his flesh. Divine chastening has an aspect that is seldom ever emphasized or talked about, but it's possible where a person is subject to physical illness or even possibly death. Now, I'm not sure how you're feeling right now, but I'm getting a little worried, okay? I'm starting to examine my life. I do not want anybody coming to me and pronouncing this kind of sentence on me. But Paul was confident, and he had the authority of God behind him, and so he put out this sentence to this person. Why? What was at stake here? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, if you read it out of the New American Standard, you may get a little lost. But maybe perhaps a, another translation says it a little bit differently and a little bit more clearly. 
The thought would be, as found in the New International Version, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So, all of this happens, why? So that the sin nature that caused this person to want to do these things and practice these things and live this way would be utterly destroyed. But this person's soul, this person's spirit would be saved when Jesus comes again. And so this is what all this comes together. Now, as I was putting this together, I said to myself, self, you got some problems here because there's somebody out there in this audience who is going to say, now, I remember in the Bible, in passages like Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, it says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now, isn't Paul going against this when he speaks so strongly? You know, is that what he is doing? Well, the context of Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 tells us the Lord is prohibiting the negative kind of judgment that is hypercritical, hyper, hyper, uh, hyper, uh, hypercritical and hypocritical, self-righteous, and unfair. That's what the Lord was against. He says, stop it. Not that kind of judgment. But there is a positive kind of judgment that is righteous, that is good. The kind that we are to exercise with careful moral and theological discernment. Where is this found? Well, if you look at John chapter 7, verse 24, you'll find this. And it says in Matthew, I mean John chapter 7, verse 24, it says, Do not judge according to appearance but judge with righteous judgment. Oftentimes, the world likes to point a finger back in us, and they'll go right up in our face, and they'll say, you have no right to judge me. In fact, the Lord even says, do not judge because you will be judged. They'll throw it in our face. But the Lord also says in 724 that believers are to exercise a righteous kind of judgment. And this is one that's based upon the moral and theological understanding of Scripture, okay? So, now maybe perhaps this is a good place to stop and address the concerns about, uh, from those who are concerned about church discipline being too harsh, too much, too far, and too fast, okay? I get that too. I have people who question that, and they said, boy, church discipline's really hard, Pastor. How can, how can you do this? It's moving too fast. Everything's moving too fast. Well, Church discipline includes a careful, compassionate, and patient process alongside it. Uh, For example, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to your own self, so that you too will not be tempted. So, the, the force of Scripture is, hey, 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 you who are spiritual, you, you who have your act together, go to these people and quietly and individually try to restore them to fellowship. Boy, that sounds pretty good. I'd rather do that than have to go up in front of the board of elders or some other tribunal of some kind. We are also to seek to warn. If you turn to Titus, Titus chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, 
it says this, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Can I repeat that? After a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. We are to seek to warn people once, at least twice. May we able to maybe even go more than that? Perhaps if there's some promise in there, if there looks like there's some progress in there, okay? So God puts in these passages alongside this business of church discipline. This precedes church discipline. And then the last one, of course, is the one you're most familiar with, and that's Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. And what does it say there to us? It says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three Uh, uh, witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So, three things. Seek to restore. Seek to warn. Seek to win back the person. Okay? So what does that tell us? It tells us that repentance and restoration of the erring believer is God's first choice, okay? Removal of, is God's last choice. That's the thing that he does not want to do. And so he puts in all these other processes to help arrive at that, you see? And so every effort is made to have the errant believer repent and be restored. The church has authority and duty to judge sin and to take appropriate actions as listed in Scripture. Now, the last thing, the church should remove the sinner as necessary. This is found in verse 6 to 13. Now, Paul uh, reminds, teaches uh, the Corinthian readers an important principle about the power of sin. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you look at starting with verse 6, your boasting is not good, he says. And he says, do you not know that the, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Now, to a non-Jewish mind, that may be a great mystery, okay? To a guy who doesn't cook like me, what is leaven? To a person who knows what leaven is, what does it mean? What does it stand for in this passage, Okay. But first of all, Paul comes right out and he says, your, th- your boasting is not good. Your worldly thinking about sin is not accurate. It is not on target. It is not good. Rationaling, rationalizing away or around sin with worldly thinking is never good. It has no good result. But yet, but yet, but yet, we insist on it, don't we? And we just keep on thinking the way we thought, the way the world thinks. The principle they need to be reminded is that did you not know that little leaven uh, uh, leavens the whole lump of dough? Now, Jesus, I mean, Paul is reaching back to his Jewish background and to specifically the Jewish Passover feast. 
The Passover celebrates and commemorates the Jewish deliverance from death in Egypt by the sacrifice of a Passover lamb and its blood put on the doorpost, okay? And when the death angel flew over Egypt, he saw the blood, he would pass over that house, and death would not visit that household. So, to commemorate this wondrous event, uh, God gave them some requirements, and part of their requirements was cleaning or removing any leaven or yeast from the home. Why? Because yeast was a symbol of evil or sin. And so what he's trying to convey to them is that the, they have been purified. They, have, they are free of evil and sin. But he also reminds them by this that though sin is small, it is powerful. Sin can affect a whole loaf. It can affect a whole body. It can affect a whole church. And so he wanted them to separate themselves for any sinful behaviors that they had in the past before they accepted Christ. That's why in verse 7, what does it say? It says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump or new loaf, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. He says, look, Christ has been our Passover lamb. His blood has been like put over the doorpost of our life, and we are spared death, eternal separation from God. And so he says we need to separate ourselves from sin. And that's what he means by verse 8 when he says, Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with... Um, the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, look, guys, let's separate ourselves from sin. Let's turn our backs on the old way we used to live, and let's put on the new, which is a life of sincerity and truth. Like a loaf of unleavened bread, the church must be pure. And to, re to live this way, we need to remove sin from our midst. That's what his point has been. He says, why is this guy still here? Why do you allow this fellow to keep living with his mother like as if they're husband and wife? They're not. But yet, he is making his way through this. Now, Paul, this is not the first time he's written to them about sexual immorality problems. And maybe even specifically this one. So in verses 9 to 13, he has to clear some things up. What does he clear up? First of all, he clears up the idea of believers and the immoral world. Look at verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. Some people had taken it too far, and they said, we're going to judge everybody. I mean, whether they're in the church or outside the church, man, we're going to just slay all of them. You know, we're going to take them all to court. We're going to really wipe them out. We're really going to discipline them. Paul says, no, 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 no. He says, that's not what I meant at all, he says in verse 9 and 10. He says, if I had to do that, you might as well just move out of the world. Go find yourself somewhere else on some island somewhere. So we, we should, we should 
uh, understand that. The church should be impacting the world instead of the world impacting the church. That's one case. That's verses 9 and 10, believers and the immoral in the world. Now, the second case is believers and the immoral in the church. Now, Paul comes out much more strongly here. He says, but actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a person, he says. He says, look, I can't tell who is a real believer and who isn't, okay? It's impossible for us sometimes because people are good actors. <laughs> Some people have great abilities to adapt. But he says, even so-called believers or real believers, if they're in the church, then if their behavior is uncomely, then immoral, then we ought to deal with them, with them okay? Then we can exercise church discipline. For what he says in verse 12, and thir- I mean verse 13, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you judge, uh, in verse 13, he says, but those who are outside, uh, I'm sorry, verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? For those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among you. Clear as a bell. God will take care of those outside the church. You take care of those inside the church, okay? And so, with this in mind, remove the guy. That's what Paul is trying to say. The church must discipline those believers in the church, even if it means removing an errant member from its midst. We've got to be willing to go that far, okay? We've got to be willing to go that far. Well, what do we need to know and do? Just three very quick things. First of all, church discipline shows that God is very serious about sin, okay? And in our days and times, humanity has gone, decided to go the other way. Basically, humanity is very comfortable with sin. Things that are happening now that maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, a generation ago would be, whoa, I can't believe it. Now everybody just, well, what's next? Okay, what else is going to happen? You see, we've become too comfortable with sin. We have become too clever about the ways to justify our sinful attitudes and actions. We've become very clever, you know? Someone can say, hey, the devil made me do it. Hey, my parents made me do it. Hey, my girlfriend made me do it. You know, it's never our fault. It's always the fault of somebody else. See, then we absolve ourselves of any blame or any guilt. We've become very adept and very clever at these kinds of arguments. But God dares to discipline, sometimes through individuals and sometimes through the body of Christ. Sin in the church is not a matter to be treated passively, but actively especially those sins which publicly dishonor the Lord and cast doubt on the faith. Okay? Got it? That's what has to happen. Second thing, church discipline is really an act of love by God for those who are His children. <laughs> oh, you say, ah, Pastor, how did you get that one now? How, how, how can you say discipline is an act of love on, on, on God's part? Well, look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. 
My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Correction, discipline comes as natural to a parent, to a child, as all get out. It's part of the job description of being a parent. You naturally discipline. You naturally want the best for your child. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 5 and 6 says this. And it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord, what? Loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. If you drop down then to verse 10 and uh, verse 9 through 11. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for what? Our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, you're feeling it. You're feeling hurt. You're feeling pain. You're feeling all of shame, maybe. And you're feeling just awful. But at the end of the day, if discipline is allowed to do its job, we will have a completely different life. One that is filled with peace and filled with fruits of righteousness. So, this becomes very important. The church, dis- church discipline shows that God is serious about sin. Church discipline is really an act of love by God for those who are his children. Lastly, church discipline can be effective. We don't have time to read the passage, but if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11... Many scholars believe this is a reference to this very same fellow, all right? And he repented, and he was restored. And Paul was writing a very strong letter to the church at Corinth. says, take this brother back in. He's done everything that we could ever expect. Restore him to fellowship. I don't know what turned him. I don't know what... I don't know the exact sequence, but I do know when the church took the hard stand that he came back to the Lord and he came back to the church. Church discipline means the church mourns over sin, judges sin, and removes the unrepentant sinner if necessary. I leave you with this. Let us love God and one another enough to be like our loving Heavenly Father, who dares to discipline his children as needed according to his word. Now, I had an afterthought of this. It was like a nightmare. I said, someone's sitting out there and they're saying, how is this preparing us for what lies ahead? Well, I think what's going to happen is that times are going to get difficult here in Singapore, culturally and spiritually. Okay, I, 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 you know, I, I wish the very best for Singapore, 
but I just don't know how long we're going to be able to hold out. I just don't know how long we're going to be able to hold out. Sin is raising its head, and it is gaining ground at light speed. But the church, the church has to stand firm, and the church has got to be willing to do what it has to do in order to deal with sin. And so this is what we have in front of us. GBC needs to know its role and responsibility and respond to sin accordingly. All right? So that's what God has to say to us today. And I hope that it has somehow been an encouragement to you and it will give you strength in those times when it is most needed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for all that you are doing in our lives and in our church. Lord, we do not know the future, but we know who holds the future, and that is you. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves anew to you. We commit ourselves to your word, to your will, and to your ways. We're not very strong. We know that. We know that left on our own, that probably we would fail miserably. But, Father, we throw ourselves at your feet and hear our heart's desire to be your people in these times. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us rise for the song of response.